0: Chapter Three of the Secret Service by Albert Richardson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Casper. Chapter Three I will be correspondent to command, and do my spiriting gently. The Tempest. The good fortune which in Memphis enabled me to learn so directly the plans and aims of the secession leaders did not desert me in new orleans for several years i had been personally acquainted with the editor of the leading daily journal an accomplished writer and an original secessionist uncertain whether he knew positively my political views and fearing to arouse suspicion by seeming to avoid him i called on him the day after reaching the city he received me kindly never surmising my errand invited me into the state convention of which he was a member asked me to frequent his editorial rooms and introduced me at the louisiana democratic club which had now ripened into a secession club among prominent rebels belonging to it were john slidell and judah p benjamin of jewish descent whom senator wade of ohio characterized so aptly as an israelite with egyptian principles admission to that club was a final voucher for political soundness the plans of the conspirators could hardly have been discussed with more freedom in the parlor of jefferson davis another friend introduced me at the merchant's reading room where were the same sentiments and the same frankness the newspaper office also was a standing secession caucus These associations gave me rare facilities for studying the aims and animus of the leading revolutionists. I was not compelled to ask questions, so constantly was information poured into my ears. I used no further deceit than to acquiesce quietly in the opinions everywhere heard. While I talked New Mexico and the Rocky Mountains, my companions talked secession, and told me more every day of its secret workings than as a mere stranger I could have learned in a month. Socially they were genial and agreeable. Their hatred of New England, which they seemed to consider the cruel cause of all our woes, was very intense. They were also wont to denounce the Tribune, and sometimes its unknown southern correspondence, with peculiar bitterness. At first their maledictions fell with startling and unpleasant force upon my ears, though I always concurred. But in time I learned to hear them not only with serenity, but with a certain quiet enjoyment of the ludicrousness of the situation. I had not a single acquaintance in the city whom I knew to be a union man, or to whom I could talk without reserve. This was very irksome at times almost unbearable. How I longed to open my heart to somebody! Recently as I had left the North, and strongly as I was anchored in my own convictions, the pressure on every hand was so great, all intelligence came so distorted through rebel mediums, that at times I was nearly swept from my moorings, I could fully understand how many strong Union men had at last been drawn into the almost irresistible tide. It was an inexpressible relief to read the northern newspapers at the Democratic Club. There even the Tribune was on file. The club was so far above suspicion that it might have patronized with impunity the organ of William Lloyd Garrison or Frederick Douglass the vituperation which the southern journals heaped upon abraham lincoln was something marvellous the speeches of the newly elected president on his way to washington were somewhat rugged and uncouth not equal to the reputation he won in the great senatorial canvass with douglas where debate and opposition developed his peculiar powers and stimulated his unrivalled logic The rebel papers drew daily contrasts between the two presidents, pronouncing Mr. Davis a gentleman, scholar, statesman, and Mr. Lincoln a vulgarian, buffoon, demagogue. One of their favorite epithets was idiot, another baboon. Just as the Roman satirists, fifteen hundred years ago, were wont to ridicule the great Julian as an ape and a hairy savage the times have changed while i write some of the same journals not yet extinguished by the fortunes of war denounce jefferson davis with equal coarseness and bitterness as an elegant vacillating sentimentalist and mourn that he does not possess the rugged common sense and indomitable perseverance displayed by abraham lincoln while keeping up appearances on the mexican question by frequent inquiries about the semi-monthly steamers for vera cruz i devoted myself ostensibly to the curious features of the city odd enough it sounded to hear persons say let us go up to the river but the phrase is accurate new orleans is two feet lower than the mississippi and is protected against overflow by a dike or levee The city is quite narrow and is drained into a great swamp in the rear. In front, new deposits of soil are constantly and rapidly made. Four of the leading business streets nearest the levee traverse what a few years ago was the bed of the river. Anywhere by digging two feet below the surface one comes to water. The earth is peculiarly spongy and yielding the unfinished custom-house built of granite from quincy massachusetts has sunk about two feet since its commencement in eighteen forty six the same is true of other heavy buildings cellars and wells being impossible in the watery soil refrigerators serve for the one and cylindrical upright wooden cisterns standing above ground like towers for the other in the cemeteries the tombs are called ovens they are all built above ground of brick stone or stucco closed up with mortar and cement sometimes the walls crack open revealing the secrets of the charnel house decaying coffins are visible within and once i saw a human skull protruding from the fissure of a tomb here indeed imperial caesar dead and turned to clay might stop a hole to keep the wind away despite this revolting feature the catholic cemeteries are especially interesting about the humblest of the monuments artificial wreaths well-tended rose beds garlands of fresh flowers changed daily and vases inserted in the walls to catch water and attract the birds evince a tender, unforgetful attention to the resting-place of departed friends. More than half the inscriptions are in French or Spanish. Very few make any allusion to a future life. One imposing column marks the grave of Dominique You, the pirate, whose single virtue of patriotism exhibited under Jackson during the War of 1815 hardly justifies upon his monument the magnificent eulogy of bayard the hero of a hundred battles a chevalier without fear and without reproach in new orleans grass growing upon the streets is no sign of decadence stimulated by the rich moist soil it springs up in profusion not only in the smaller thoroughfares but among the bricks and paving-stones of the leading business avenues canal street is perhaps the finest promenade on the continent it is twice the width of broadway and in the middle has two lines of trees with a narrow lawn between them extending its entire length at night as the long parallel rows of gas lights glimmer through the quivering foliage growing narrower and narrower in perspective till they unite and blend into one it is a striking spectacle a gorgeous feast of the lanterns on the lower side of it is the french quarter more un-american even than the famous german portion of cincinnati known as over the rhine here you may stroll for hours a straggler from another civilization hearing no word in your native tongue seeing no object to remove the impression of an ancient french city the dingy houses familiar with forgotten years call up memories of old mexican towns they are grim dusky relics of antiquity usually but one story high with steep projecting roofs tiled or slated wooden shutters over the doors and multitudinous eruptions of queer old gables and dormer windows new orleans is the most parisian of american cities Opera houses, theatres, and all other places of amusement are open on Sunday nights. The great French market wears its crowning glory only on Sunday mornings. Then the vendors occupy not only several spacious buildings, but adjacent streets and squares. Their wares seem boundless in variety-anything you please, edible, drinkable, wearable, ornamental, or serviceable, from wenham ice, to vernal flowers and tropical fruits, from Indian moccasins to a silk dress pattern, from ancient Chinese books to the freshest morning papers, ask and it shall be given unto you. Sit down in a stall over your tiny cup of excellent coffee, and you are hobnobbing with the antipodes. Your next neighbor may be from Greenland's icy mountains or India's coral strand get up to resume your promenade and you hear a dozen languages in as many steps while every nation and tribe and people french english irish german spanish creole chinese african quadroon mulatto american jostles you in good-humoured confusion some gigantic negresses with gaudy kerchiefs like turbans about their heads are selling fruits and sit erect as palm trees they look like african or indian princesses a little annoyed at being separated from their thrones and retinues but none the less regal for all that at every turn little girls with rich creole complexions and brilliant eyes offer you aromatic bouquets of pinks roses verbenas orange and olive blossoms and other flowers to you unknown unless being a woman you are a botanist by gift of fortune or a man that science has come by nature upon jackson square a delicious bit of verdure fronting the river gloom antique public buildings which were the seat of government in the days of the old spanish regime near them stands the equally ancient cathedral richly decorated within where devout catholics still worship its great congregations are mosaics of all hues and nationalities, mingling for the moment in the democratic equality of the Roman Church. Attending service in the cathedral one Sunday morning, I found the aisles crowded with volunteers, who, on the eve of departure for the debatable ground of Fort Pickens, had assembled to witness the consecration of their secession flag, a ceremonial conducted with great pomp and solemnity by the French priests. In the First Presbyterian Church, the Rev. Dr. Palmer, a divine of talent and local reputation, might be heard advocating the extremist rebel views. The Southerners had formerly been very bitter in their denunciation of political preaching, but now the pulpit as usual made obeisance to the pews and the pews beamed encouragement on the pulpit if i may go abruptly from church to cotton and they are not far apart in new orleans a visit to one of the great cotton presses was worthy of note it is a low building occupying an entire square with a hollow court in the centre it was filled with heaped-up cotton bales which overran their limits and covered the adjacent sidewalks negroes stood all day at the doors receiving and discharging cotton the bales are compressed by heavy machinery driven by steam that they may occupy the least space in shipping they are first condensed on the plantations by screw presses the cotton is compact upon arrival here but this great iron machine which embraces the bales in a hug of two hundred tons diminishes them one-third more the laborers are negroes and frenchmen who chant a strange mournful refrain in time with their movements the ropes of a bale are cut it is thrown under the press the great iron jaws of the monster close convulsively rolling it under the tongue as a sweet morsel the ropes are tightened and again tied, the cover stitched up, and the bale rolled out to make room for another, all in about fifty seconds. It weighs five hundred pounds, but the workmen seize it on all sides with their iron hooks, and toss it about like a schoolboy's ball. The superintendent informed me that they pressed, during the previous winter, more than forty thousand bales. The rebels, with their early penchant for capturing empty forts and full treasuries had seized the united states branch mint containing three hundred thousand dollars and the national barracks garrisoned at that time by a single sergeant visiting with a party of gentlemen the historic jackson battleground four miles below the city i obtained a glimpse of the tall gloomy mint and spent an hour in the long, low, white, deep-balconied barracks beside the river. The lone star flag of Louisiana was flying from the staff. A hundred and twenty freshly enlisted men of the state troops composed the garrison. Three of the officers, recent seceders from the Federal Army, invited us into their quarters to discuss political affairs over their bourbon and cigars. As all present assumed to be sanguine and uncompromising rebels, the conversation was one-sided and uninteresting. We drove down the river bank along the almost endless rows of ships and steamboats. The commerce of New Orleans was more imposing than that of any other American city except New York. It seemed to warrant the picture painted by the unrivaled orator Prentiss of the future years when this crescent city shall have filled her golden horn. The long landing was now covered with western produce, cotton and sugar, and fenced with the masts of hundreds of vessels. Some displayed the three-striped and seven-starred flag of the southern confederacy, many the ensigns of foreign nations, and a few the stars and stripes. We were soon among the old houses of the Creoles. Footnote: CREOLE means native, but its New Orleans application is only to persons of French or Spanish descent. We were soon among the old houses of the Creoles. These anomalous people, a very large element of the population, properly belong to a past age or another land, and find themselves sadly at variance with America in the nineteenth century, They seldom improve or sell their property, permit the old fences and palings to remain around their antique houses, are content to live upon small incomes, and rarely enter the modern districts. It is even asserted that old men among them have spent their whole lives in New Orleans without ever going above Canal Street. Many have visited Paris, But are profoundly ignorant of Washington, New York, Philadelphia, and other northern cities. They are devout Catholics, sudden and quick in quarrel, and dueling continues one of their favorite recreations. We stopped at the old Spanish house, deeply embowered in trees, occupied as headquarters by General Jackson, and saw the upper window, from which, glass in hand, he witnessed the approach of the enemy the dwelling is inhabited and bears marks of the cannon-balls fired to dislodge him like his city quarters a plain brick edifice at one hundred and six royal street new orleans it is unchanged in appearance since that historic eighth of january a few hundred yards from the river we reached the battleground, where in eighteen fifteen four thousand motley undisciplined half-armed recruits defeated twelve thousand veterans the americans losing but five men the british seven hundred this enormous disparity is explained by the sheltered position of one party behind a breastwork and the terrible exposure of the other in its march by solid columns of half a mile over an open field without protection of hillock or tree a horrible field whence the great reaper gathered a bloody harvest the swamp here is a mile from the river jackson dug a canal between them throwing up the earth on one side for a breastwork and turning a stream of water from the mississippi through the trench the british had an extravagant fear of the swamp and believed that attempting to penetrate it they would be engulfed in its treacherous depths so they marched up with unflinching saxon courage in the teeth of that terrible fire from the americans ranged four deep behind the fortification, and the affair became a massacre rather than a battle. The spongy soil of the breastwork—the tradition that bales of cotton were used is a fiction—absorbed the balls without any damage. It first proved what has since been abundantly demonstrated in the Crimean War and the American Rebellion—the superiority of earthworks over brick and stone. THE MOST SOLID MASONRY WILL BE BROKEN AND BATTERED DOWN SOONER OR LATER, BUT SHELLS AND SOLID SHOT CAN DO LITTLE HARM TO EARTHWORKS. JACKSON'S ARMY WAS A REPRODUCTION OF FALSTAFF'S RAGAMUFFINS. IT WAS MADE UP OF KENTUCKY BACKWOODSMEN, NEW ORLEANS CLERGYMEN, LAWYERS, MERCHANTS AND CLERKS, PIRATES AND RUFFIANS JUST RELEASED FROM THE CALABOOSE TO AID IN THE DEFENSE, many negroes free and slave with a liberal infusion of nondescript city vagabonds noticeable chiefly for their tatters and seeming from their looped and windowed raggedness to hang out perpetual flags of truce to the enemy judah truro a leading merchant while carrying ammunition was struck in the rear by a cannonball, which cut and bore away a large slice of his body but in spite of the awkward loss he lived many years to leave an enviable memory for philanthropy and public spirit parton tells of a young american who during the battle stooped forward to light a cigar and when he recovered his position saw that a man exactly behind him was blown to pieces and his brains scattered over the parapet by an exploding shell More than half of Jackson's command was composed of negroes, who were principally employed with the spade, but several battalions of them were armed, and in the presence of the whole army received the thanks of General Jackson for their gallantry. On each anniversary the negro survivors of the battle always turned out in large numbers, so large indeed as to excite the suspicion that they were not genuine. The free colored population at the time of my visit was a very peculiar feature of New Orleans. Its members were chiefly of San Domingo origin, held themselves altogether aloof from the other blacks, owned numerous slaves, and were the most rigorous of masters. Frequently their daughters were educated in Paris, married whites, and in some cases the traces of their Negro origin were almost entirely obliterated this however is not peculiar to that class it is very unusual anywhere in the south to find persons of pure african lineage a tinge of white blood is almost always detected our company had an invaluable cicerone in the person of judge alexander walker author of jackson and new orleans the most clear and entertaining work upon the battle its causes and results yet contributed to american history he had toiled unweariedly through all the official records, and often visited the ground with men who participated in the engagement. He pointed out positions, indicated the spot where Packenham fell, and drew largely upon his rich fund of anecdote, tradition, and biography. A plain, unfinished shaft of Missouri limestone upon a rough brick foundation now marks the battlefield. It was commenced by a legislative appropriation, but the fund became exhausted and the work ceased. The level cotton plantation, ditched for draining, now shows no evidence of the conflict, except the still traceable line of the old canal, with detached pools of stagnant water in a fringe of reeds, willows, and live oaks. A negro patriarch, with silvery hair and legs infirm of purpose, hobbled up to exhibit some balls collected on the ground. The bullets, which were flattened, he assured us, had hit somebody. No doubt they were spurious, but we purchased a few buckshots and fragments of shell from the ancient Ethiop, and rode back to the city along avenues lined with flowers and shrubbery. Here grew the palm, the characteristic tree of the South. It is neither graceful nor beautiful but looks like an inverted umbrella upon a long slender staff ordinary pictures very faithfully represent it new orleans march eleventh eighteen sixty one we are a good deal exercised just now about a new grievance the papers charged a day or two since that the ship adelaide bell from new hampshire had flung defiant to the breeze a black Republican flag, and that her captain vowed he would shoot anybody attempting to cut it down. As one of the journals remarked, his audacity was outrageous. En passant, do you know what a black Republican flag is? I have never encountered that mythical entity in my travels. But tis a fearful thing to think of, is it not? The reporter of the Crescent, with charming ingenuousness, describes it as so much like the flag of the late united states that few would notice the difference in fact he adds it is the old stars and stripes with a red stripe instead of a white one immediately below the union of course we are greatly incensed it is flat burglary you know to love the star-spangled banner itself and as for a black republican flag why that is most tolerable and not to be endured captain robertson the audacious has been compelled publicly to deny the imputation he asserts that in the simplicity of his heart he has been using it for years as a united states flag but the newspapers adhere stoutly to the charge so the presumption is that the captain is playing some infernal yankee trick who shall deliver us from the body of this black republican flag if it were possible i should like to see the southern confederacy work out its own destiny to see how slavery would flourish isolated from free states how the securities of a government founded on the right of any of its members to break it up at pleasure would stand in the markets of the world how the principle of democracy would sustain itself in a confederation whose cornerstones are aristocracy oligarchy despotism this is the government which in the language of one of its admirers shall be stronger than the bonds of orion and benigner than the sweet influences of the pleiades a few days since i was in a circle of southern ladies when one of them remarked i am glad lincoln has not been killed why so asked another because if he had been hamlin would have become president and it would be a shame to have a mulatto at the head of the government a little discussion which followed developed that every lady present except one believed mr hamlin a mulatto yet the company was comparatively intelligent and all its members live in a flourishing commercial metropolis you may infer something of the knowledge of the North in rural districts, enlightened only by weekly visits from secession newspapers. We are enjoying that soft air which comes caressingly to the brow, and produces in the lungs a luxurious delight. I notice on the streets more than one premonition of summer in the form of linen coats. The yards and cemeteries, smelling with myriads of roses and pinks, are carpeted with velvet grass. The morning air is riddled of orange and clover blossoms, and nosegays abound sweet with the breath of the tropics. March 15th Men of northern nativity are numerous throughout the Gulf states. Many are leading merchants of the cities, and a few planters in the interior. Some have gone north to stay until the storm is over. A part of those who remain out the native fire-eaters in zeal for secession. Their violence is suspicious. It oversteps the modesty of nature. I was recently in a mixed company where one person was conspicuously bitter upon the border slave-states, denouncing them as playing second-fiddle to the abolitionists and traitors to southern rights. "'Who is he?' I asked of a southern gentleman beside me. "'He,' was the indignant reply. "'Why, he is a northerner. "'Blank him. "'He is talking all this for effect. "'What does he care about our rights? "'He don't own slaves and wasn't raised in the South. "'If it were fashionable, he would be an abolitionist. "'I'd as soon trust a nigger-stealer as such a man.'" End of Chapter 3